Well, it's good to be, to be back with you again. Um, most of my career has been in worldview and culture. Uh, when I was studying at the University of South Florida, uh, well, just growing up, I was really not very God-conscious, didn't really care, never had a Bible, didn't really care, those kind of things. And um, I went to a, uh, this gathering of young people. They were having free pizza. That's why I went, because I love free pizza. I love good pizza. I love bad pizza. I just love pizza. And, um, and they shared the gospel, much like Grace had just done and, and for us. And um, I remember thinking, that's amazing. And he said, you can pray and trust Christ, have, invite Christ into your life. So I did. I was a senior in high school. And I haven't gotten over it yet. And the reality of, of having Christ in your life is just one of those things that um, it's got to grow. You have to nurture it, right? I mean, you have to. But at the same time, my dream was still to go into the uh, space program. I was studying math and physics at the university. The Lord said, go forth and multiply. I said, I can do that. So I can do And um, the reality of my own life and the trajectory changed as I, uh, as I continued to grow in Christ and decided that there was probably more important, higher things to do than going to space. And so I got into education and have been doing that. And, but one of the things that God led me into was how a lot of us really don't think about the culture around us. As the Apostle Paul, when he walks into Athens and is invited to speak at the Areopagus with all the elite, he quotes to them, not from the Bible, but from Epimenides and Aratus. He quotes from their sources as a means of helping them to come to understand what God is doing through Christ. Now, before he had just opened up the scriptures to the, to the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, these people had no idea. And so he's recognizing his audience, and he wants to build a bridge to Jesus Christ. And so he uses a lot of them. So many times we don't realize what God is doing through people outside the faith. And so what I want to talk about is how we look at our culture right now. It is a very strange, strange culture. Um, we cannot make light of the challenges that we find in our culture today. There's a lot of noise. And the noise is just not confusing. A lot of it, a lot of it is just evil. How can we tune our ears and our hearts to that which is good? And, and those who suffer the most are our kids. Because they are making decisions about life in the world. And many times, as we did when we were adolescents, we look to the world around us to help us find our way, right? We do. And sometimes the messages that they're receiving are overwhelmingly bad. The wrong trajectory completely. And so that's what I want to talk about. So if you'll allow me a moment. We're going to get into Proverbs chapter 9, which I think beautifully encapsulates where we are as, as a culture. If you give me just a few moments to, to set the table here, because one of the things I think is most devastating is what this cultural moment, when I'm talking about cultural moments, I'm talking about everything from sexual identity to the politics to the social perspective to the smartphone that God gave all of us to be able to be right on every question we have, and every question we're asked. I love asking a question to somebody or giving a fact, and immediately about a half a dozen heads go down. You know they're going to check out if what you just said was correct. 
you know. But the way the church has been negatively impacted by the culture, we've been doing this from the very beginning, where we will look to culture for the clues and the cues of how we're supposed to respond, how we're supposed to dress, what we're supposed to do. And non-Christians are taking note and in many ways making a big deal out of it and ridiculing believers. I won't give you, I've got a lot of examples, but just let me give you one. I'm, 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 I'm not necessarily, necessarily, uh, uh, being critical here, but I am. The, um, <laughs> there is a, a website, started off as an Instagram, a website called Preachers and Sneakers. A lot of you are familiar with it, right? There you go. And this guy, not a believer, though people are not a believer, they go to megachurch pastors and note that these guys, I mean, they're wearing, looks like old jeans, probably $500 jeans, but they're, they're wearing very expensive sneakers. And the, the, their point is, and this is from the Wall Street Journal, was this particular headline, preachers and their $5,000 sneakers. Why one man started an Instagram account showing churches wealth. And so, regardless of what these pastors are saying, everybody's looking at their feet, saying, because some of the sneakers are over $5,000. Some of you are wearing them, I noticed. Um, <laughs> and you're looking right at what I'm wearing right now, aren't you? Ah, okay. Um, but, but the reality is, they're trying to fit in, and they're thinking, people are going to look at these and know that I've got expensive shoes on, so they're going to be more serious about what I have to say. That's the thinking of the culture. If you look right, if you look expensive, or if you look, you got some credibility, then it's going to work. Now, I showed this to Dr. Easley. I said, look at this. And, and, and he, you know what he said? He says, those sneakers are really cool. <laughs> and I don't know why, but he, he said, would you remind everybody that October is Pastor Appreciation Month? <laughs> I don't know why he wanted me to say that, but there you go. We live in a culture of what I call a, a, caca a cacophony of a culture. Martin Scorsese, one of a lot of people noticing this, said this, our world is so glutted with useless information, images, useless images, sounds, all this sort of thing. It's a cacophony. It's like a madness, I think, that's been happening in the past 25 years. And we as a church have not known how to, how to respond. I wanted to talk about how we're supposed to respond when megachurch pastors, Christian leaders fall, fall into sin, fall into immorality, fall into all sorts of things. There are, there's a long list, as you know, and um, just not enough time. Maybe when I come back, I can talk about, talk about my perspective on that. But it, it is true, isn't it? There is so much noise, so much noise. And of course, the word cacophony, it's a harsh, discordant mixture of sounds, not just loud and confusing, but filled with enticing messages, disturbing images, advertising worldviews, and informing all of us, particularly our children, how to choose life, how to believe, and how to live. Never before have parents been so out of the loop as to what is coming into the lives of our children. I was speaking in, in Texas at a, at a big school, and the parents came, and I was going to talk to them, and they, the question I got asked most was, when 
Do you give your child a smartphone? At what age? Have you guys struggled with that a little bit? What, what age? And a man stood up, let me tell you, he says, last Friday, my son turned 14. And I said, when you turn 14, you can have a smartphone. So I got one of those stripped down iPhones, gave it to him. Within two hours, one of the girls at his Christian school had sent a picture of herself nude to him. And I don't know how it got through. But my son had a smartphone for two hours. And for most of us, we would never know, right? We would never know the messages that come in that help form who they are and who they're becoming. Because every one of us in this room, we deal with what's called the ultimate questions. The ultimate questions of life, which are the questions of origin. Where did everything come from? The idea of meaning. Why am I here? The question of morality. How do we know what's right or wrong? How do we live? And then the question of destiny. Where is everything headed? And what happens to me? What happens when I die? Those are called the ultimate questions of life. Everybody in this room, you have an answer to those questions. I've spoken in over 30 countries talking about worldviews. I give these questions. Everybody understands it. Everybody understands it. From Thailand to Cambodia to China to South America to Russia. Every, these are the questions that make us human. And the reason we ask these questions is because that's how God made us, in his image and likeness. We have this moral nature within us that craves meaning and purpose. And we have a spirit within us that know that we have a future, an eternal future. And so these questions, they fall into three major categories. We can talk about that another time. But these questions drive us. But how we get there, what's called universal pursuits. And this is where our, our adolescent, pre-adolescent kids are. They're trying to find out who they are. They're trying to understand what they are. In fact, now it's more important to know what you are than who you are. Looking for a label. Because when you take God out of the equation, you see what happens to both the ultimate questions and these universal pursuits. If God's not there, then suddenly it's not in the beginning God, but in the beginning me. It's all about me. Meaning, notice meaning is in both of these. Your young people, your adolescent kids, you're struggling with, why am I here? Is there a meaning to everything? And if there is, why am I here? USA Today did a survey of thousands and thousands of their readers and asking, if you, ask, you could ask God one question, what would it be? Why am I here was way number one. Why am I here? And then our kids are also looking for community. Who's my group? Who are the people that are like me? And you know where they're finding it? Online. They're finding people that have the same urges, the same feelings, the same struggles, the same lusts, the same desires, the same, the same thinking as they do. And they want to be a part of that. And again, you look at the, the, the network, the web of all the things that kids are getting their information from. And that is informing them, that is discipling, that is mentoring them. But it's not just them, it's ourselves as well. And this is the noise that is making an impact in them and us as well. Back in 2009, the Prince's Trust in uh, the UK did a survey of, of uh, early teens all the way through early 20s about life in general and so on. And um, the report that came out on the, t uh, the Telegraph brought, uh, focused on one particular question, a series of questions. And it basically focused on this, that one in 10 young people consider life 
meaningless. Young people at the cusp of life, right at the beginning of where life is going to be taking off for them, with all their dreams coming true, all their loves coming to fruition, 10% saying life is meaningless. It was stunned. In fact, notice that they have, the, uh, what's the word they use there? An alarming study. I don't know why I did the whole course. The alarming study. Ten years later in 2019, they did a very similar survey. And the survey brought up this, that nine in ten young Brits believe life lacks purpose according to a shocking, no quotes, new study. And kids in UK are no different than our kids here. Can you imagine 90% of our kids thinking life is meaningless? If you believe life is meaningless, you are going to live differently, right? You will. So do they. There's nothing to live for, nothing to die for. So that brings us to, by the way, can I give you a resource, parents? Your parent, parents, you're going, <gasps> um, there's a resource. Some of you are familiar with called Axis, A-X-I-S, Axis.org. It's not on the, I just forgot to put it up there. Axis.org. This is one of the, they're the only ones that are really doing this and doing it well. They have, this is for parents, you can get a lot of this free, but there are some, you know, pay a little bit for a, a conversation guide on LGBTQ, a conversation guide on suicide, a conversation guide on smartphones. It is, it is great. And they give you, they will send you an email every Friday on what's happened in popular culture this past week. All from a Christ-centered, a very distinctly Christ-centered perspective. It is gold. Teachers in Christian schools are using this. In fact, one big school down uh, over in in Ohio, this this is their chapel. They use access materials for their entire chapel series for that year. And the kids are excited about it because they're talking to them where they are. God bless you. So that's a resource. I hope you will take advantage of that because it's it's a good one. In Proverbs 9, now, you can't read that, I don't think. You're not supposed to. We're going to dive in. But I want you to see the whole chapter because, say, Bill, what verse in chapter 9 of Proverbs are you going to be focusing on? And the answer is yes. Okay. Um, But it's not going to take as long as you think because I want to see the big picture. Let's see the big picture. Here is Proverbs chapter 9, 18 verses divided into three Six verse sections. Proverbs chapter 9 is at the end of the Proverbs 1 to 9, which is really a description of wisdom and folly and how they are so different. And this is at the end of that particular particular. So you've got the, the three different sections there. But before we dive in, let me, let me just give you a word about that. Wisdom, as Michael pointed out, uh, about a year and a half ago when you were in Proverbs. You've been in the big book for a long time. And uh, I listened to uh, a part of a sermon on Proverbs. And I, I fell asleep. But um, <laughs> actually, I, I love listening to his sermons just, just because. Nobody, nobody opens up the word better than Dr. Easley. And uh, he's done, done that his whole life. And he lives it too, as, as you know. The Hebrew word, of course, chokmah for wisdom, covers a range of technical skills, everything from 
making clothes, to doing metal work, to um, putting together and, and devising and executing battle tactics. It's, it's a word that talks about living and doing things skillfully. Now, the idea of applying it to life means that you know how to live skillfully. It's like, uh, it's like driving around the interstate in, in Nashville during rush hour. I mean, you have to make a lot of decisions, right? A lot of decisions. Hopefully all of them are good. Because your decisions affect other people and their decisions affect you. And so you want to make it home or wherever you're headed, right? And that's the idea of skillful living is that it's not just you, but you're aware of your circumstances, the people in your life, the people that are right in front of you, and you want to make decisions that have, of course, a God-centered perspective. Skillful living is wise understanding and wise decision-making. Now, a person can make good decisions, sound decisions, based on, based on good sense and reason. So you don't have to be a Christian or even religious to have a sense of wisdom, at least in the practical way. But wisdom in its full form gives the fullest picture of reality, the life that we live, ourselves and the people around us. We can be wise. People say God is wise. Yes, God is he's the only wise God, but God is not wise as we are wise. God created everything. So it's not a matter of he's got to be wise and all that because it's his. And so he created everything for himself. So wisdom really begins with him. I want his picture. I want to know the way the world really is in order to make those decisions. And one of the most beautiful truths that has really given me hope and understanding is the reality that God created each one of us individually. And God created you not that you would love him. God created you so that he could love you. That's why he created you. And if you don't sense God's love, it is not his fault, although that's the big narrative now, particularly among young people. If I were God, I wouldn't have created a world with so much suffering and so on and so forth, as if it was God's fault. And God allowing us to choose, and God allowing us to love, you can't love without choosing to love, right? Uh, Proverbs 19.3 says, a man's way ruins his life, and yet his heart rages against God. as God's fault. But the reality of all this is that God designed us so that he could love us. Now, folly is the exact opposite of wisdom. Uh, Psalm 14 and Psalm 54, 50, 51, right, 51.1 says, the fool has said in his heart, what? There is no God. The heart. The heart is not emotions. A lot of people think that's what the heart is. But the heart is where the mind, the thoughts, and the feelings come together to collaborate the will. The heart is the innermost being of you. And that's where all the things that you know to be true and your emotions come together. Most of our struggle is we know what's right, but our emotions lead us somewhere else. Or, some, or sometimes we feel this way, but, mm, you know... Coming together is having that, that sense of uh, commonality in our heart, the very source of what we decide to do. The fool has said in his heart that there is no God. The idea is that there is a rejection of a higher law. That's what folly is. There is no God. We are self-focused. We are sometimes shamelessly immoral. We're mocking. We ridicule anybody and anything that is related to God or anything good, anything positive. All I have to do is get on social media for a while and see 
how the mocking and the ridicule is carried out shamelessly. Folly is essentially evil. That is the way of folly, and that is the end of folly. Not merely sincere or light or silly. Taking what God has made and ridiculing it, or worse, ignoring it. Taking what is true and calling it false. Taking what is good and beautiful and putrefying them. Folly is not clowns, zany comedy. It's not bozo or chuckles. It's Hitler. It's Mao. It's Stalin. It's Pol Pot. Folly is not circuses or comedy clubs. It's Auschwitz. It's re-education camps. It's the killing fields of Cambodia. It's domestic abuse, child abuse, racism, addiction. That is the end of folly. And a lot of times we just think, oh, we're just not sincere, you're funny, and so on. Pornography leads to adultery, either in your mind or in your flesh. Pride to arrogance and callousness. The love of money to vanity, conceit, to false sense of security, self-sufficiency. Folly leads to death, and we don't take it seriously enough. And Proverbs wants us to. And nowhere is our cultural moment so accurately portrayed as in Proverbs chapter 9. Thus, let's look at Proverbs chapter 9 for just, just a few moments here. Proverbs chapter 9, as I mentioned, 18 verses, three, eight verse sections. The first one is a beautiful personification of wisdom. Wisdom cries out. Wisdom is personified as a woman. Let's look at the verses here. Wisdom has built her house. She has carved out her seven pillars. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. So she is preparing this sumptuous feast. She, her house has seven pillars. Now that might be metaphorical for completeness, but the idea is it's a big stately home. And the food she is preparing, the original language is beautiful. The food is going to be great. It is a feast. It's intended to be a celebratory feast. She has sent out her attendants. Why? Probably because of what is described next. She has a job for them to do. The passage goes on to say, she calls out from the tops of the heights of the city, Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, come and eat of my food and drink of the wine I have mixed. Abandon your foolishness and live and proceed in the way of understanding. Notice, she's focusing on a particular type of person. In the scriptures here, he's called naive or sometimes the simple one. And it usually focuses on younger people who don't know quite where they fit into the world. They don't know quite what they believe. When I was at university, we would often get, we'd always get <laughs> students who were Christian. They'd been raised in Christian home, Christian church, Christian school sometimes. And they get on their own, even on a Christian campus, and they begin to wonder, is my faith really my faith or is my parents' faith? 
Is it my youth pastor, youth group's faith, my church? Who am I really? What do I really believe? And oftentimes there are challenges. Even on a Christian campus, if you can believe that. But it never bothered me. Because sometimes when they're very honest about what it is they believe, who they are becoming, then that's usually the best place where you can begin to speak into a life and let the Spirit of God work. The naive, the young people, come in here, learn from me, spend your time in understanding wisdom and seeing all that it promises. Because this comes from God himself. But notice the end. Abandon your foolishness. In other words, you've got to choose. You've got to be intentional. You must choose. Abandon the foolishness that's in your heart and live. And proceed, walk literally in the way of understanding. In other words, walk with your eyes open. Grace, walk with your eyes open but with a heart and mind filled with wisdom so that you know how you're supposed to respond. What a great invitation. But there are some competing voices, one in particular. So if, if we look down at the end of the chapter, at the six verses at the end, we're going to get in the middle. There's a reason it's in the middle there. Where folly cries out. Just as persuasive as wisdom was attempting to be so is folly. Now remember, wisdom is life. Wisdom is, is, is great, has great benefits. Folly leads to death, ultimately. Self-centered, self-serving death. But she's got her own stick. And listen to what she says. A woman, a woman of foolishness is boisterous. She's loud and obnoxious. She has a lack of understanding and knows nothing. She sits at the doorway of her house on a seat by the high places of the city. The same wording that is used for wisdom is used for the woman of folly. They are equally calling out, although it appears that wisdom has sent out individuals, ambassadors. Folly is screaming and yelling to come in to take what she has prepared. What has she prepared? She's calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their paths. In other words, they're, already, they're going along in life, and she is trying to deter them. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks understanding, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret. It's pleasant. And here's where the cacophony originates. Because in our culture today, is there not, are there not competing voices? Competing worldviews. Competing perspectives of life in the world. Promising those who listen and those who respond things that they just cannot provide. Unless it comes from God himself, whose promises never end. I love it when the word promises in the scriptures, because I know it's true. In fact, my wife, by the way, this is my wife Lynn here. Um, when our kids were little, if they asked they could do something, and I would say yes, they would say promise, because they knew if I used the word promise, 
it was going to happen. And sometimes I'd say, well, it depends. But if I said the word promise, they knew it was going to happen. And if I said the word promise, that meant I had to do it. And I don't think I ever failed. Do you remember if I ever failed? Okay, thank you. Um, <laughs> because I, thought, I think the word promise is so important. And God takes it very seriously as well. The promises he brings to us are amazing. But when you think about what, what wisdom has, it's a sumptuous feast. What does folly have? What does folly have? Bread and water. You think, who would, in their right mind, would go for bread and water over this big feast? A lot of people. A lot of people. And of course, as in most of the poetic sections, stolen water, the water does not necessarily refer to just water. In fact, throughout Proverbs and in a lot of the other wisdom literature, water is a reference to sex. Stolen water is a reference to adultery. It's not yours. Now just, just go back to chapter 5 and others, and you'll see where water has that reference. You know, stay, stay with your own sister and don't go and bother other people's wells. You know, that's the idea. In other words, don't commit adultery. Just stick with what is yours. So this idea, stolen water, it's so sweet and exciting and alluring. And bread eaten in secret, so, so pleasurable. And the idea, of course, here is you talked about the bread of criminality. They sense when they, these guys would get together and they would collude to commit crimes. And that was called the bread of wickedness. wickedness. The bread of wickedness, wickedness they were getting into. In fact, if you read the Confessions of Augustine, he talks about this particular crime he committed when he was younger. And he got, it was so exciting to do this. And he felt like one of the gang because we were doing this crime. And as he thought back on it, he says, I was so stupid. What was wrong with me? I never would have done that by myself. But those guys and the excitement and all of that. And that's the collusion that happens when you think about this bread eaten in, in secret colluding to do bad things because it's so cool. You're one of the gang. The last verse. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. All that she promises up front, the sensuality, the excitement. She, he come in and the next thing you know, after they've indulged in all of that, they find nothing but death, emptiness. Now, so those are the competing messages. And it hasn't changed since this was put together who knows how long ago, 1,000 B.C., 900 B.C. Two centuries after Proverbs was written, Homer wrote a story known as the Odyssey. Of course, if you're familiar with Odysseus or Ulysses, he was uh, going to battle the Trojans. And of course, the story goes, he did not want to go and get in the war, but he did, and he went and became a hero. And he knew that as they were making their way back home, that there would be many perils along the way, he and his men in the ship. And the most devastating of the perils was the sirens. Sirens were these creatures, beautiful creatures, a, a woman 
looked like a mermaid, but with two tails. Go figure. And they knew that whenever you went by them, they sang the sweetest, most seductive, enthralling songs. And every, every man who, who, who would uh, go by them in ships, they would be so allured, they would come in, their ship would crash, and the sirens would murder them. Well, Circe told Odysseus, here's what you do. First, get some beeswax and put it in the ears of all your men. Because these are the boats. And then have them lash you to the central mast, the main mast. So that, because he wanted to hear the sirens, but he didn't want to get away. So that's what he did. And And they went by. And of course, what happened is he began to hear it. He began to yell at the men to let him go. He had to go over. But they had wax in their ears. (laughs) And they couldn't hear the sirens, and they couldn't hear him. And so they made it safely by. That's that's not a bad way to overcome temptation, but you can't always lash yourself to the mast. But it's it's a story that I think is important for us to realize that there are bad things constantly in our sphere of influence. Have you ever seen a, uh, a picture of a siren? You probably see one just about every day. And uh, if you ever go to this particular store, that's a siren. Notice the two tails, the siren. Um, that's what they're doing. They're taking the temptation of the sirens and caffeine and saying, ha, we got you, you know. Um, but by the way, this year the anniversary blend is, is Odyssey. And they have a new uh, blend out as well called Siren's Blend. So be careful. Be careful. (laughs) The current message of Siren's for us is folly. And it overwhelms us. Tempts you to choose to believe in ways that are destructive. To embrace a worldview of meaninglessness fading on our identity, whether it be our sexual nature or some practical pleasures, anything except God. Anything except God. Which brings us to the the pivot point, those six verses in the middle, which are really what we are all about in this church. What we are all about in this church. Beginning in verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me your days will be multiplied and years of life will be added to you. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. And if you scoff, you alone will suffer from it. The word, the phrase of fear of the Lord occurs uh, 14 times in Proverbs. And, of course, people will tell you, well, fear doesn't really mean fear. It just means reverence. I said, what is there about the word fear that you don't understand? I mean, it's really talking about fear because he's God. He is God. But by the same token, he's a God who made you so he could love you and wants desperately for you to love him back. It's a choice you make there. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. Same word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Genesis 1.1. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of, it's the door into wisdom. It begins with acknowledging God. It begins with acknowledging the Christian, the the biblical worldview. 
chapter four chapter when we just heard of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the true narrative of the world. And it's not whatever narrative is possible on Instagram now. The beginning of wisdom, the knowledge of the Holy One, to know Him, to be known by Him. God desires that we know Him. That's why He revealed Himself to us. For by me, your days will be multiplied, the years of life will be added, a long life. And from the Christian perspective, we say, oh, that means eternal life. Now we see. And then he adds this. If you're wise, you'll be wise for yourself. If you scoff, you will alone suffer from it. In other words, you decide. You decide. Whatever you decide, who you're going to follow, wisdom or folly, you will get the consequences whether they be benefits or whether it be destruction. Notice how he goes on. He goes on to describe why are they focusing on just the naive. Well, one who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor to himself. And one who rebukes a wicked person gets insults for himself. Do not rebuke a scoffer or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise person, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise person, and he will become still wiser. Teach a righteous person, and he will increase his insight. We read earlier in Proverbs that fools despise wisdom and instruction. It's a mark of them. Don't try to tell them what to do. It's all me. It's all up to me. But the reality is, of course, is how much we need each other. And I love it when somebody will correct me or ask a question about something. It makes me reevaluate that. You will not become wise by default. You will become a wise person because you want to become a wise person. You will choose that. If you become, if you're a young person here, and you fall into folly, you fall into the kinds of sin that will mark you for the rest of your life, it's because you chose that. You choose wisely. Even if you're, what, 180 years old, I think Grace said, even if you're that old, you still are choosing every day the kind of person you're becoming. You will not become in the future what you're not becoming today. That's why the Christian life is lived out in those days where we have the opportunity and the responsibility to choose every day the kind of person we're becoming. And just because you're 14 or 15 or 16, so I got lots of years. No, you don't. No, you don't. You're building your life right now. The fear of the Lord, as I said, occurs 14 times. Here's a couple of them. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. And before honor comes humility. Proverbs 15, 33, and then Proverbs 22, 4. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. So the fear of the Lord occurs many times throughout Scripture along with humility. The reality of who we are, we are created beings. We are not the center of the universe. And as Lewis reminds us, humility is not thinking less of ourself or thinking rightly of ourself. I often hear that. But humility is not thinking of yourself at all where you can genuinely turn your face to the people around you, to the, your heart to the people around you. Because the mark of a person who indeed is a fool is all about them. And you don't really find yourself till you give yourself away. 
And that's why God, throughout the Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, talks about how we look at the people around us. So making sense in the noise, choosing the way of wisdom, the attitudes that we have, are humility and grace. Grace, of course, is the New Testament perspective. You don't deserve what God has done for you, but it's yours if you want it. And you embrace that. And that's how we treat other people. If God shows grace to us, how can we not show grace to other people? Everybody, we are called to live differently, not to live better or to be smarter or to vote differently, but to live in ways that matter. Love your enemies. Can you imagine how that sounded to the ears of those Jews in the first century? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And yet it's that teaching that has transformed so many cultures. I saw a list of, of, of uh, countries who have been transformed by leaders who took to heart what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. It's amazing. And many times against all odds. So how do you measure up to that? Are you a person of grace? You've received it and you freely give it to others? Live differently. And of course the actions are to hear. To make sure that what you hear, and you hear it a lot, that you actually do it as well. Don't be a hearer of the word, but a doer as we read in the, the Proverbs of the New Testament, the, the book of James. Hear and do. We, we live in uh, western North Carolina, as you know, in Asheville, and, which is Cherokee country. And um, the Cherokee tribes are just a delightful, throughout history been delightful, so abused. It's a very sad story. But uh, there were so many believers, so many believers. And uh, one of the stories I was told about them, there was a Cherokee um, Native American of the Cherokee tribes who was with a friend, an attorney friend, in Times Square in, in New York. A lot of you have been to Times Square. It is a loud place. And they're walking along, and he says, the, the Native American stopped and said, I hear a cricket. He said, what? <laughs> I hear a cricket. He said, how can you hear a cricket? Well, sure enough, across the street in one of those uh, co uh, concrete cement uh, planters, you know, with a little tree in it, there was a cricket. And that's probably an apocryphal story, but it's a good one. But uh, the, the, the reality is that's the kind of ears we need to have in the cacophony of our culture to have our ears directed toward that which is true, that which is good, that which is beautiful. And that doesn't happen by accident. Again, it's intentional. What kind of Christians are we going to be? What kind of church do you want to have as we look at the culture around us? We Christians, we have too many agendas and no vision, you know? That is, what kind of Christian do you want to become? Agendas, you've got all these little things here, political, social, financial, and so on. But what kind of Christian do you want to become? You decide. You decide. Well, five, six centuries after Homer, Apollonius also wrote another epic about Jason and the Argonauts. I don't know if you remember the movie, 63, weirdest movie ever made. But I was a little, I was a young kid, and uh, it was amazing. 
But same thing, Jason, you know, the golden fleece and all that, he's taking the Argonauts from the Argo, and they're going by the islands of the Sirens themselves. So, what is he going to do? Lash himself? Nope. He had on his boat Orpheus, the legendary poet, philosopher, music maker. And as they got close, he sat and began to play his lyre and sing. And what he sang was so beautiful and captivating that all of the sailors didn't even hear the sirens because they were so captivated by what's from him. And I realize that that is not scripture, but Jesus, uh, I should say Paul does remind us that we are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. 2 Corinthians 5.20. God uses us to represent him. God uses us to tell the sweet, pure, hopeful story of Jesus Christ and his forgiveness and his grace to a world that so desperately is without hope. That's what we do. We live it and we give it. So, as we think about what God is doing us, for us in this, this really, really noisy world, I pray that for all of us that we will choose the path of wisdom. If you've got young people here, be involved in their life as best you can and help them begin to understand and let the Spirit of God work in ways that are transforming.